Welcome to the Real Weird Podcast, Dispatch 3. Hey everyone, so I'm back for the third of the Dispatch episodes. Uh, I did just want to give a quick shout out just because I am, uh, I have been looking at my analytics page. I just want to thank everyone for the uh, downloads you've been doing, especially to, uh, I was happy to see that there was some international listeners on there too, especially in Brussels. So uh, especially to the Belgians, thank you, but also to the listeners that I apparently have in uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Mexico, Italy, and apparently Pakistan as well. (laughs) So we're going to go through the movies today. Uh, first up is Pieces of a Woman. I saw this on net, I saw this in my Netflix queue a while ago. Finally decided to give it a listen. Uh, give it a watch, rather. <laughs> uh, so the basic synopsis is that there's this uh, young couple in Boston, played by Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf, and they're expecting their first child, and it's a home birth. And unfortunately, for some reason... Uh, that's never really established. It's kind of left up in the air in the movie. Is that the baby is the baby goes into cardiac arrest and dies pretty shortly after being born. Uh, and that's basically the first thirty minutes. We get the title card after that whole sequence. Um, and then the rest of the movie is just the couple trying to cope with the loss. And there's a court case against the midwife because uh, some people figured that you know she must have been negligent somehow. And I I will say this, for such a tearjerker movie, what I appreciated most of all is that the lighting and the sound was very, very naturalistic. Whether, whether it was indoors or outdoors, it definitely felt like um, the sound and the light was what you would hear or see in that location in real life. It didn't feel like it was uh, being manipulated, uh, you know, to get more of an emotional response from the audience. The camera work is very, very uh, fluid. You know, it just has that sort of like the image kind of drifts around a little bit. Uh, not so much that it feels like someone's shaking the camera. Uh, some scenes are more locked down and static. And what I mentioned earlier about the sound design is that another thing is uh, the non-diegetic sound and non-diegetic music. You know, the stuff that's um, for the audience purposes that's not in-universe. It's kept to a minimum. And there's there's plenty of great movies I've seen, but I always feel like they're trying to manipulate the audience and get more of an emotional uh, response from them by just, you know, playing up the sad music a little bit. And they didn't really do that, uh, which I appreciate again, because otherwise it would just feel kind of cheesy when it's supposed to be, you know, sad or wholesome or whatever they're going for. But I will also say that the music was... Um, pretty good for the scenes it was used so there's that at least Uh, especially from the two leads all the performances were really really great Um, especially in the (laughs) in those first like 20 or 30 minutes when it's supposed to be you know the actual birth scene Vanessa Kirby man she is she just looks like she is completely out of her head with you know the pain that you would be experiencing giving birth uh uh, we also have her mother is played by uh, Ellen Burstyn, who I've seen in a bunch of stuff recently, but I think um, any fans of older horror movies might recognize her from The Exorcist. Um, as to the one thing that kind of threw me for a loop is that the movie is kind of broken up into these distinct chunks, which are just uh, specific dates. 
and you know you get a date card um i forget exactly what it was but there was like september november december march april you know and what it keeps cutting to is this image of uh, a bridge it's supposed to be in boston leboeuf's character is a construction worker working on it and each time it gets uh, nearer to completion until the end of the movie when it finally shows the bridge finished I have an idea. Uh, I'm assuming it's supposed to be symbolic for something in the story. I'm not entirely sure what. I have an idea, but I'm not really sure how to articulate it. I'm uh, I'm guessing from the context with the rest of the movie, it's probably supposed to be the grieving process overall. But, you know, I'll, uh, I'll leave that up to you to watch it. To you to figure out when you watch it, I mean. Uh, yeah, like I mentioned in, like, the first dispatch with, you know, when I was talking about X, you know, I've said that it's especially great when something can, you know, pull off such a well-completed movie in such an overdone subject matter, and this is, I've kind of jokingly said to my friends that A Marriage Falling Apart is the uh, drama equivalent of slasher movies. It's one of the most overdone topics there is, but, you know, every now and again you get one that's still very, very good. So, all that being said, I'm going to give this one a 9 out of 10. Next up, we have Death on the Nile. Uh, this is a this is the most recent adaptation of the Agatha Christie novel of the same name. It both it is both starring and directed by uh, Kenneth Branagh, who is an actor that I really, really love. But I do want to get this out of the way first. The art... Uh, the set decoration, the staging, the cinematography is all fine, but I don't know. I watched the like nineties, no, sorry, nineteen seventy eight version on the Criterion Channel streaming service before this, and this just felt less fun. I'm not entirely sure why. Brana was playing, you know, the famous detective Hercule Poirot, um, but for some reason, I don't know. He just had significantly less just attitude for lack of a better term than uh, Peter Ustinov did when he was playing it. Um, I mean, I had no issue with him as the performance, but there was just this like pointless drama about how like jaded he was romantically, uh, the trauma he experienced from world war one, which wouldn't normally be a problem, but from what I remember, and I mean, it's been a while since I've read the actual novels, but I don't remember much about Poirot having a sort of concrete backstory. Um, anyone listening can feel free to chime in with their thoughts on that. I don't know. This just, it doesn't really go anywhere. It just makes him seem like, I don't know. I, I liked Poirot in the older versions because he was just this big, like, he was a very intelligent man, but he just came across as this sort of like big oaf with a funny mustache. And now he just seems like he's just some aging, half-assed action hero. Now, I will say there were some things that I kind of liked about this one. It was interesting. Um, I mean, one of the issues I had was some of the confusion of the characters. Uh, there's the character Andrew, for example. In this one, he's the cousin of the victim when he was originally the uncle. The Audubons were changed from a jazz musician and her daughter to a, 
well, sorry, they were changed from a novelist and daughter to a um, jazz musician and her daughter. The 78 version also had a character named Jim Ferguson. He was, he was an outspoken, you know, believer in communism. And that was the reason why he was a suspect in the uh, murder of the heiress in this story. You know, he, he resented the victim's wealth, thought she was a leech on society, and that was supposed to be the motivation Poirot was suggesting for his, uh, for him being the culprit. But they did this weird thing where he and the character Mrs. Van Schuyler were sort of folded into one. So she's kind of this weird hybrid character. <laughs> like, she was described as having Ferguson's original motivation, but she's also an very wealth woman of um she came from a very wealthy family and donated all of her money to the communist party but she's also a kleptomaniac so it was just sort of a just weird kind of creative license taken uh the character colonel race was replaced by a character named book who was in fact a character in murder on the orient express which both the novel and the book Sorry, the novel and the movie versions, both of the movie versions, but he doesn't actually appear in Death on the Nile in the book version. Honestly, I would say that... This is going to sound like a weird complaint, but my complaint with the movie is that it's not great, but it's also not terrible. It's just kind of this sort of forgettable middle ground. It just feels like generic lackluster remake, which is... Especially sad for some that had such a star-studded cast, high production value, and honestly some moments of, like, genuinely enjoyable comedy. But, you know, I wasn't particularly impressed with it. I didn't find any major flaw with it. So I'm going to just say middle of the road, 5 out of 10 for this one. Next up we have Nightmare Alley, directed by Guillermo del Toro. So for those that don't know... This is Guillermo del Toro's remake of a 1947 movie of the same name. I would say if you can find the original, go watch that too, because it's wonderful. We have a pretty impressive cast here, uh, starring as Bradley, Co- starring Bradley Cooper as uh, Stanton or Stan Carlyle. He is a drifter with a sort of uh, past that's kind of left uh, ambiguous until the end of the movie. He's starts out as a carnival worker and eventually takes up a solo show as a mentalist because he's just very, very good at reading people. He ends up in this battle of wits with a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Lilith Ritter, played by Kate Blanchett in this, in this version, who initially tries to expose him as a fraudster and then later sort of uh, manipulates him for her own ends. And what follows is both a tense little dance as the two just continuously needle each other, and eventually Carlisle just starts going in a bit of a downward spiral. Um, I'm not going to say anything to spoil the end. I will just say it's a bit more downbeat than the original version. I mean, granted, I mean, granted, it part is also just you know um, changing of the times. I mean, there you're allowed to show a lot of stuff that you weren't allowed to back in the '40s. Uh, I would say that it is, I would say what I enjoyed most about it is what I always say is the thing that makes a good remake. It's true to the source material, but it's changed just enough to be unique and interesting. You know, I, I've kind of jokingly said that movies, when you're talking about 
uh, remaking a movie, it's always good to think of it like comfort food. You want the same but different. You can move it just a bit, just a tiny bit, you know. Um, I think someone on Red Letter Media, Josh Davis, basically said, yeah, just take those mashed potatoes you uh, love so much and just put some bacon bits on them. That's basically what this movie is. And, I mean, it's uh, it's very good pacing. I mean, it's almost an hour longer than the original. It's just a little over two and a half hours long. But, I mean, it doesn't... You don't feel tired uh, just sitting there and watching it because there's always something going on to keep your attention. Uh, there's a scene later in the movie that's actually shot at a place I recognized from a few other movies. So, I mean, this doesn't really have anything to do with the review of the movie itself. I um, I just thought it was worth mentioning. It's the R.C. Harris Water Filtration Plant in Toronto, Canada, I believe. And it's just been used in so many movies and TV shows. Um, there was a stoner comedy back in the day called Half-Baked. There was a movie called Strange Brew. Um, I think Del Toro actually used it for, this, for scenes in a children's hospital in his movie Mimic back in the 90s. And probably the one that was more well-known to me, because I'm a huge fanboy of John Carpenter, it was used in his 1994 movie In the Mouth of Madness, which I promise I will be covering at some point. I just need to work out a schedule. But yeah, off topic, it was just nice to see it because the you know the whole like 1930s Art Deco architecture just it just has this sort of like slightly creepy but also very elegant look to it. All it just needs is a little bit of set dressing. But yeah, it's also an excellent showcase of Del Toro's skill. He blends very uh, very well fleshed out drama with some subtle horror elements. It's presenting it in such a way that makes the horror elements just jut out and hit you without the need for them to be particularly gruesome. It's it's scary without needing to be shocking, is the way I put it to a friend one time. It kind of reminded me of some of his previous um, horror entries. Not so much Pan's Labyrinth, but more like Kronos, Devil's Backbone, Crimson Peak. And I'm going to give a shout-out to Kate Blanchett on this especially because her performance, like all the performances were good, especially from you know our lead, Bradley Cooper, Rooney Mara, Willem Dafoe, Ron Perlman, uh, Tony Collette. But uh, Kate Blanchett as Dr. Ritter, just every scene she was in just immediately became tense because just how icy her attitude was. So yeah, this is one of the... This is one of the better ones I've seen lately, so I'm going to give this a perfect 10 out of 10. All right, next up we have Antlers. Uh, this is a horror movie set in Cispus Falls, which is a fictional small mining town in rural Oregon. And we open with a scene of a man pulling up to an abandoned mine to check on a meth lab that he was running with an accomplice. Now, while said man is packing up the material, his young son Lucas is in the truck waiting, and he hears the two get attacked by some unknown creature that we don't see for a very long time. Now, three weeks later, we cut to this young boy Lucas at school, and we get a sense that he's been very horribly affected by the event. His teacher is a native of the town who's moved back after a very, very long time away, and she is concerned about his behavior. He's 
become far more withdrawn. He's making these creepy drawings. Uh, it kind of resonates with her because she herself was a victim of abuse, as we find out. And she tries to befriend him, assuming that it's just, you know, run of the mill. I don't want to say run of the mill, but, you know, just standard as you would picture in a normal setting, just child abuse going on. The truth, and this isn't giving much away, but if you want to go in blind, then come back in about one minute. Uh, actually, probably closer to three. The truth is that he's keeping some sort of monstrous being locked up in his home. Um, and we get the sense that we see images of him taking roadkill home for it, and we don't really know for a while what exactly is going on. Now, I'll personally say, despite some other people complaining about the script having, quote, underdeveloped themes, I think the bigger issue was more just the use of some genre cliches when talking about, like, the buildup of tension, there were a few too many fake-out scares for my taste. Uh, kind of mimicking what I said on Piece of a Woman, there was a bit of an over-reliance on creepy music. I mean, I mean, the acting for some of the child actors, too, was... A little flat, but they're child actors. I can cut some, some, cut them some slack on that. And honestly, the general atmosphere is good enough to make up for it. It's definitely a... It, it definitely looks the part of a tiny town that is just kind of, you know, has a very dark underbelly. It's If you picture like a decaying rural town where most of the workforce is kind of dried up, people are moving away... It's not much opportunity in town anymore. This is basically it. Well, and about the themes, getting back to that, I feel if the abuse element and this teacher trying to look out for a vulnerable student, if expanded and polished could work as a drama if you took the horror aspects out. To me, that's the sign of a good horror movie in a lot of ways. Because the filmmaker is not just saying, you know, hey, look at this cool monster that the prop department made for us. And on that note, the creature design is wonderful. I'll probably talk about this more in depth at some point in the future, but I'll leave you with this for a verdict. It's a well-executed, creepy, atmospheric horror movie with some uh, native folklore elements. There's some aspects of dark drama and tragedy, and it's got an ambiguous downbeat twist ending. And it's mostly just dragged down by a handful of failings that usually revolve around genre cliches. Uh, so I think I'm going to leave it with a 7 out of 10, just because I don't know if it's quite an 8. So, yeah, 7 out of 10, final verdict on Antlers. And now we come to my favorite of this particular bunch. We have the unbearable weight of massive talent. I, I honestly love this. Like, the idea alone, when I saw the trailers, like, the concept alone was so batshit <laughs> that I thought it was interesting. So I, I went to see it as soon as I could get the free time off work. So for those that somehow managed to avoid the trailers, what we have is Nicolas Cage playing a version of himself. who is just feeling, you know, down in the dumps, kind of creatively unfulfilled. He's going through a divorce. Um, as far as, you know, big-name celebrities do, he's going through some financial problems. And he gets an offer of a million dollars to make an appearance at the birthday party of an eccentric superfan living in Spain. And he gets there, after spending a little bit of time with this man, he gets dragged into this sort of, like, web of espionage and some political intrigue. Because as it turns out, the CIA believes this man is an arms dealer 
who kidnapped the daughter of a Catalan politician. And they're using Cage as a proxy to bug his home and look for look for evidence. It, it's such a weird thing. I actually, I, I can't really testify to this because I haven't really seen either movie, amazingly enough, but I heard a friend of mine jokingly say it's a mix of The Interview and Sunset Boulevard. <sighs> I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going to gush about this one for a little bit, but I swear there were like three different movies going on here all at once. There was a drama about a family separation, a spy thriller, and a comedy about just two guys vibing in a little country town in Spain. Coastal town, whatever. Nicolas Cage gives a performance here that is probably one of my favorites because we get the best of both his good movies and his sort of iffy movies. He acts so, like, naturally... uh, very laid back, and then occasionally we get one of those famous unhinged moments. Like, people talk about Nick Cage's freak-out acting. There's a bit of that punctuated here. There's a ton of meta-humor about movies and the making of movies, and especially regarding his past ones. And I do think that's a bit of a tough tightrope to walk, honestly, because it can come off just incredibly insufferably smug, like, you know... I don't know. There's a there's a phrase I heard if it or describing one I forget the original context, but it was from the YouTube channel Overly Sarcastic Productions. And one of them basically said, if it was winking at you any harder, it'd be wearing an eye patch. <laughs> but at least here it feels like you're meant to laugh along with the characters. The film actually opens with a couple of people <laughs> watching the ending of Con Air. And near the end of the movie itself, Cage even makes an offhand reference to his uh, wonderfully little So Bad It's Good remake of The Wicker Man. Uh, There's a great plot twist that I will not spoil. And this is always something that I just enjoy just because it's one of those things that occasionally the movies get accurate. There's a scene where him and Pedro Pascal's character Javi they just take acid and they go into town and they just get up to these weird shenanigans and it plays so naturally. And it's a amazing blend of like drama and comedy when they're doing it. Uh, for those that have seen it, um, the silent film he's talking about, by the way, um, that is worth a good watch. Obviously it's like over a hundred years old now, but it's impressive given the limitations they had at the time. Anyway, back on topic. So yeah, unbearable weight of massive talent is a concept that could have just been utter nonsense if it were handled by, you know, a lesser director, a lesser cast, or lesser writers. But not to get too sappy, but it was a wonderful ride, and it kind of reminded me of why I like just discussing movies in the first place and not just, you know, passively watching them. So yeah, this is going into the little 10 out of 10 club on the letterbox list that I have. So that is it for this Dispatch episode. Um, The next one is going to be dependent on which number that I've got done first, because I I plan these ahead of time in little little clusters. So I'm either going to have a little trio, a little grab bag trio of um, most recent Bond movie, most recent Scream movie, and the newer Suicide Squad. But there's also a trio of movies about the uh, civil rights movement that I'm going to watch. Um, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, U.S. versus Billy Holiday, MLK, FBI. 
So whichever one of those group I get done f- watching first, I'm going to put that on the next Dispatch episode. And I am excited to announce that for the next regular episode, I'm going to bring... I'm going to be bringing you all on a little tour of Italy. We're going to do a double feature of two of the Italian giallo genre, basically stylized murder mystery movies for those not in the know. Um, We've got Duccio Tessari's The Bloodstained Butterfly, and we've got The Case of the Scorpion's Tail, directed by Sergio Martino. So that's it for uh, this installment. Hope to see you all again next time. Take care. Signing off. Goodbye.